Well, good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I am your host, William Hill, and I say that every week, and by now you know that. So I will stop saying that, maybe, hopefully, at some point in the future. Um, Send me an email at confessingourhope at gpts.edu to remind me of such, and I will stop telling you who I am. But anyway, this is the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. We try to host this podcast each week, and you can get information about the seminary at gpts.edu. If you want to find out more information about this podcast, you can visit us on the web at confessingourhope.com. And as usual, you can get all of these podcasts live and up-to-date on our GPTS mobile app available for Android and iOS devices. And I would encourage you to do that. We are beginning to release some more information, some past theology conferences, chapel sermons, and whatnot for it. So if you want to have instant access to those kinds of audio resources, get our GPTS mobile app. Again, you can get that at the confessingourhope.com website. Today we have an interesting uh, discussion lined up. We'll be talking with a man who has been in the ministry for a couple years now, and we're going to talk with him about the various successes, pitfalls, trials, difficulties, and uh, the host of uh, those kinds of things that result from a man who comes out of seminary, perhaps maybe uh, has one idea of what ministry is, and then finds out that ministry has got a whole different set of ideas that no one taught him about in class. I can attest to that reality uh, very much so myself. So we'll be talking with Seth Starkey about that in just a minute. I wanted to alert the listeners uh, to the reality that we have a spring theology conference coming up. Now, you may be thinking, okay, um, spring. It's not even winter yet, and you're talking about spring. Well, I'm optimistic. Uh, Maybe winter will be short, but be that as it may, in March of next year, we'll be having a spring theology conference, and we'll be having men such as Dr. Joel Beakey uh, at the conference to talk about the doctrine of man. And given the climate of the church today and the various issues that are going on surrounding issues of creation, for instance, uh, this is going to be a very interesting conference. So if you are interested in finding out more information about this conference, you can contact us again at our website, gpts.edu, and we will have more information there in the days ahead. So look forward to that, and then, as usual, that will be posted on our GPTS mobile app at the end of the conference as well. As I indicated, we'll be talking with Seth Starkey today about uh, life in the ministry, uh, especially from a perspective of one who's been in it for a short time, relatively speaking, and uh, the various issues that come along with that. Uh, Seth is the assistant pastor at Second Presbyterian Church in Greenville, here in the beautiful city of Greenville, where the seminary is, as a matter of fact. And he's been there since uh, 2010, and um, and is currently responsible for, and I'm going to let him tell me what your duties and responsibilities are there. My specific title is Youth and Families, which is a pretty generic title used in the PCA uh, for folks who deal with any sort of student ministry and the families they're connected to. So there's no like no age cutoff? Like if you're 37, are you outside of your domain of responsibility? 40 and down, technically. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. That was a little bit of my attempt at humor that didn't go go over real well. But anyway, Seth, it's great to have you on. And, you know, it's interesting as we were, we've been talking significantly off air about all kinds of stuff um, prior to the interview. Um, and it's interesting getting the perspective of 
as I inter- as I mentioned even in the introduction about you go into seminary life and you get one idea of what ministry may be like and you've heard different things certainly and observed different things and then you come out of seminary and you begin to do ministry if that's the right way to put it how is uh, how has your perspectives of ministry changed since seminary I'll begin logistically uh- in seminary, you think there's this routine of ministry, mm-hmm. and there's 40 hours in a week. We know what Monday morning is going to look like, what Tuesday afternoon is going to look like, because there have been classes allotted for you the past few years. Mm-hmm. When in reality, I'm you know two years into this, and each week truly does look different. Uh, sermon prep, you try to keep the same the weeks you're preaching, but if somebody goes to the hospital, if somebody's been in a car accident, if a phone call comes in that you've been putting off or, or trying to get a hold of for a month, Sermon prep just seems to stop. Um, so the biggest adjustment is the unknown. And mm. it's also hard to try to make a routine because, frankly, you're a rookie and don't have a clue what you're doing to set a routine. So there's, there's no notions of what should the pastor be doing. That's something you have to figure out, I suppose, year five or six. So there's no book I can read that tells me what I can expect um when I get out of seminary and receive a call somewhere? Only if you can find the secret journals of a young pastor somewhere. Maybe you should write that book. Maybe I should. <laughs> you could plug it for me on here, no Absolutely. doubt. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Seth, since we're talking about the ministry, and, and certainly we're there's some levity in our conversation, of course, but um, it's a serious responsibility. And um, you went to RTS Charlotte, um, but you certainly didn't go to RTS Charlotte because there was nothing else to do. You, you, you had a sense of perhaps this is what God would have you do with your life. And um, maybe tell the listeners a little bit about how the Lord led you to that sense of call to this life, um, one that we both admit is, is, is difficult at times, it's joyful but difficult. It's interesting. Most children drew pictures of what they wanted to be, and it was a fireman or a garbage man or, or an army hero. From the time I was about two years old, I wanted to be a businessman like my father. I had my own business cards. I went on his sales routes with him. I used to help pick out fabric for the furniture industry with him as if I knew anything about color and taste. And truly, that carried with me until college. I was a business major. I was always picking the brain of the professor after class because I wanted to be in organizational management. I wanted to be a consultant that would go in and flip companies and leave. And and that carried through with me until something interesting happened. I quit football and become very active in fellowship of Christian athletes. And I found myself halfway through my junior year when I paused and said, for the first time in my life, if you asked me what I wanted to do, I'm not so sure if I wouldn't say ministry. Mm. Mm. Now, again, considering that from two years old to junior year in college, it was always one singular thing, business like my father. That was huge for me. The next thing I know, all my passions for the conversation with the professor after class were gone. Business was something I was studying in college, but it was no longer anything I really desired to do in life. I couldn't picture myself doing business. And so I hate to be cliche on here, but that whole phrase, if you can do anything other than ministry, you probably ought to. That's actually very sound biblical advice. And frankly, with my passions and desires and what I found fulfillment in, uh, shifted from learning the, the structure of business practices and principles to how can I minister to God's people, what is theology, what is the church, that specifically is when I begin to see God was calling me into ministry, mm-hmm. is that my desires were shifted. So as a result of this um, 
shifting of desires, as you put it, um, is that when you decided at the end of college that you would then go to RTS Charlotte? It is. You know, I applied to Charlotte halfway through my senior year, spring semester, in fact. The first time I set foot on campus was actually the first day of summer Greek class. Uh, and so really I just trusted the council and some wise men, Det Bowers, Alexander Campbell, Frank Legree, uh, Tim Leslie, men like that, from a lot of different backgrounds and traditions all telling me um, – that Charlotte would be a good place for somebody coming out of the PCUSA, that Charlotte would be a good place for somebody coming out of my context on the college campus because it would be somewhat of a happy median between where perhaps I would end up and where I found myself at that point in life. Somebody who was pretty ignorant of theology and any claim to Presbyterianism I would make would simply be that's where I attended church my whole life. Mm. Well, you, Now that you mention your background, that, that's interesting, perhaps a great jumping-off point um, where you were and, and, of course, where you're at now um, at Second Presbyterian, which is a PCA congregation, if I didn't mention that, for the benefit of the listeners. Um, you grew up in a PCUSA context. Um, where, Which church? I was baptized at John Knox Presbyterian Church here in town, where my mother actually was an elder. <laughs> and uh, we moved to First Presbyterian Church in downtown Greenville when I'm in fifth grade. Wow. So that was the PCUSA was the only Presbyterian Presbyterianism I knew until college and of course those who listen to this program often ought to know by now that we consider the PCUSA a liberal denomination um, by and large there are still some good PCUSA churches out there um, so if you are in one I, I'm not speaking of you of course but um, be that as it may God led you out of that um, that denomination and then eventually as you worked your way through seminary um, how did you find out about Second, other than the fact that you probably knew it was there anyway, growing up in Greenville? Um, and what led you to your current role? I resigned from First Pres out of conviction that as much as I love the brothers there, as much as I would still, with some comfort, put the label evangelical on First Pres, and certainly uh, even reformed on some of the pastoral staff there, I knew that for me, the PCUSA was not a part of my future, that in no uncertain terms I would never be ordained in the PCUSA. That's not who I was. It wasn't in my comfort zone. Uh, and so the day I resign, I already have lunch scheduled with the Reverend Brian Haybig, a PCA pastor in town. Um, I knew him from going to church there at night at 5 o'clock before they moved into their building. That's, in fact, where I met my wife. And that was my introduction to the PCA, was Brian Haybig. Well, I wasn't looking for a job from him. I was looking for advice. And in walks uh, the Reverend Gabe Floor and the Reverend Mark Reed, assistants at uh, Second Presbyterian Church and Mitchell Road Presbyterian Church, respectively. And I remember Brian looking at me and saying, if anybody in this presbytery will be hiring, it'll be one of those two churches. They're both growing faster than the rest right now. Perhaps they'll be looking for something. Uh, in God's providence, I knew Gabe Floor, at least uh, through other connections. He also knew some of the pastors at First Pres. He was a Greenville High grad. I was a Greenville High grad. I went to school with his brother for a year. Mm -hmm. One thing leads to another, and two days later, I'm having lunch with Mel Duncan, Rick Phillips, and Gabe Floor about life at Second Presbyterian Church and about their desire to start the internship program back up. So in God's providence, the day I resigned from First Pres PCUSA, I meet who I would eventually replace as assistant minister at Second Presbyterian. Well, that's an amazing story, G given all the possible outcomes of that um that is quite amazing certainly god's providence at work there now you mentioned a wife um and i didn't mention this in the intro 
Um, but you are married and um, you have a 10-week-old boy. Boy. So how does that, how does being a, a newly married, r- relatively speaking, I say newly, I'm comparing him to me myself. I've been married for 24 years and, well, anyway, newly married. He's a newlywed in my mind. Um, how does that, the marriage dynamic, especially as a new father um, and um, relatively young marriage, uh, work into your life as a minister? The benefit is if I can learn to love my wife and my new son and, and be selfless and interested in their soul, it truly is the pattern that the minister must set for his work and practice. Mm-hmm. The love shown to them um, as I took vows to marry her and, and God's willing in a future date, take vows at, at my son's covenant baptism. I also took vows to be a minister. And so the same type of commitment and zeal I have to show to love and keep and protect um, Laura Lee and Sam, my wife and son, I have to show that same self-sacrificial love to people at church. Um, and so in a lot of ways, that's the benefit. Now, the tension always is if church is difficult or if family is difficult, how do you have the energy and time to, mm. to function and mm-hmm. fulfill all your tasks? And honestly, that, that comes to knowing your limitations and come, comes down to trusting in the Holy Spirit to know that some days at 5 o'clock you're just going to have to let him do the rest of the work that day in somebody's heart, and you really are just going to have to hang up the phone and go home because you also have a wife and son who need you. And that that's hard because some people do it for pride. Other people do it because they sense the Lord really is calling them to be involved in lives. And for that type of pastor, which I hope we all are, he really does want to fix the man's problem or the woman's problem or the teen's problem mm-hmm. before he goes home that day, when in fact it might just not be possible in that short time. Sure. So there's there's kind of the tension of of a young marriage of of fatherhood being new in the throes of ministry. It's yep. a lot of paths uh, colliding at once. How is your wife? And and I asked this question. I told you I was going to. Um, how has your wife helped your ministry? You know, it's interesting. Most Presbyterian churches are very strong in saying we only hire you, not your wife. You're the only one with a job description, not your wife. And yet, a pastor's wife is not an ordinary wife. A pastor's wife is very much involved in ministry. If she's a hindrance, she will be a hindrance to your ministry. If she's an asset, she will be an asset uh, to your ministry. Um, And so having a wife that understands that when somebody calls and needs you, it is a desperate need. It's a great uh, blessing and honor from the Lord to have a wife who says, okay, my husband does not make a habit of being gone and distracted by trivial matters. And so when something of a spiritual nature, life and death, crisis come, then the wife is supportive of the phone being mm. picked up, or the wife is supportive of me leaving and going to the hospital, because I haven't set a pattern of being trivial or frivolous in that. I only go when I have to. And so um, a little bit of patience on her part and a lot of intentionality on my part really makes for a great relationship in that regard. You make a great point there. Is that pastors can, it's so easy to get so... Well, I don't think the ministry is immune to the workaholism, workaholicism um, that is prone to any other career field. Um, you know, it's easy to, for men especially because they, they, they tend to find so much value in their jobs um, for better or for worse, and we're not here to critique that reality. It just is a reality that men are prone to that. Um, it, it Being in the ministry, um, you're not immune to that reality, uh, and especially if you have a heart for people and you want to help and, and minister to the needs of people. It'd be so easy to just 
do that 24 hours a day and, and to the neglect of those other responsibilities that you have. And I think you make a great point when you say that when your wife knows that if I do feel the need to leave the house at odd hours of the night or whatever the case may be, it's probably because it's absolutely necessary. Because in the trivial things that come along, and they come along in ministry, um, you don't necessarily do that. So there's there's that right balance, I guess, in perspective in it. How did your wife, um, you met, you, you talked to me off air, and you mentioned that you met her um, and was married uh, about halfway through your seminary life. How, how was she an assistance, uh, an asset, for lack of a better word, asset? I don't know if I like that word referring to wives, asset. Hmm. Sounds like a financial term. But um, how was she a benefit to you as you trained in seminary? Well, I'll begin with asset. Uh, she was the full-time empl- employee. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. You bailed su- me out. <laughs> su- supporting, <laughs> supporting me financially as the intern pay was not full-time. But also, it was the smile on her face when I shared with her the homiletical or the hermeneutical or the theological breakthrough that I had that day, knowing good and well that she, I had lost her at the introduction. Her willingness to play along with my newfound passion in discovering the Word of God, her willingness to show excitement and then asking for me to fill in the gaps later was a tremendous benefit. Mm-hmm. And also her open communication with me about she knew the sacrifice we would have to make. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the pay the pay scale from an organizational management guy who goes in as a consultant and flips a company versus a pastor are night and day difference. Mm-hmm. So she communicated that she was aware that money and fame and other worldly luxuries were no longer going to be a part of of life. Uh, and going into marriage, as 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 you said, I was a year year and a half in a seminary when when I meet her, uh, and. Um, so I think it's great for her that she was able to talk through the process with me and us together come to the conclusion that a life of ministry would affect her almost as much as me, and the decisions made truly would affect both of us. And it caused her uh, to really develop a love and a desire to see me prosper as a minister. And she saw the value in it and the kingdom work that went on there. And she quickly realized that any sacrifice she would make in reality, it was no sacrifice at all because in her supporting me, she was supporting a minister of the gospel mm. and her husband. Mm. And so she realized that there was that double benefit there. Put your pastor's hat on for a minute. I'm going to ask you a question I think that would be um, extremely beneficial um, for married men, um, and it should be married men who pursue the gospel ministry. Um, what kind of counsel and advice would you give, maybe born out of your own experience, um, as they work their way through seminary? As you well know, um, seminary is extremely um, time-driven. Uh, it consumes a bulk of time. Um, I'm obviously a student, been married many years, as I've said before. But what kind of advice, counsel might you give to a married man who's laboring in seminary as it pertains to his marriage. You have to know when to put the books down. You mm. know, professors rightly drill it in your brain. Your profession these four years is a seminary student. But let me refer back to something I said earlier. Keep in mind, you've made no official vows to the seminary before God. You've made official vows uh, before God to your wife. Sometimes I think that if a B-plus means you loved your wife better that semester, then a B-plus is what you should get, not an A. 
Now, I'm not referring to laziness. I loathe the notion that C equals MDIV or D equals a degree. I think that can be laziness. However, in certain seasons of life, if children are coming along unexpectedly while in seminary or family uh, situations become volatile uh, externally, um, sometimes I think your commitment to seminary while still there must, out of necessity, take the backdrop to loving and keeping your wife's heart. And once again, if she sees there's a pattern of being intentional throughout the week and throughout the semester and on summer break and Christmas break of, okay, the books are put up while we're on vacation. The books are put up while we go try the new sandwich place that you wanted to try, honey. If you show her some good faith effort on that end, she'll understand the nights you have to stay up studying for Dr. Shaw's Hebrew exam until midnight. Mm. She really will be understanding. If you're intentional in showing her that there's always room in your life to love her and to keep her and hear her fears, her her hurts, and her concerns about her life and your life together as a couple. I asked that question because I, um, shortly before I started seminary, I read an article and I shared it with my own wife about a man who was going to um, going to seminary. Uh, I forget the name of it at this time. I think it was um, I don't remember. Doesn't matter. Um, but he was very in tune with his theological pursuits. Um, could could argue the finer points of doctrine and theology with his friends and fe- fellow seminary students, but he neglected his wife. And by the time he graduated, he did not have a wife. Um, they divorced, and virtually everything he was working towards was gone, destroyed. Um, so I asked that question because I think there's a, a temptation, in men especially, um, to not keep that balance. And, and I think what you just said is, is very good counsel um, to recognize that, you know, it, if you get a B plus or a B um, and you worked hard, but you balanced your time well and you didn't neglect your wife, which is a major part of your responsibility, um, that's fine. And accept that um, and, and don't feel bad about it by any means. And I think that's very helpful um, because it is easy, I think, to just you know, shove your wife into the corner. You know, this is God's work, kingdom work, and that kind of thing, and sort of cause that divide between the two instead of seeing it as a unit. Um, and in reality, I think, and you would agree with this, that if you don't get in the habit of ministering to your wife now, you definitely won't do it when you're in the throes of, of the work of the church. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. And let me add, you've, you've prompted me on this. It's true that we're, as seminary students, undertaking the task of learning theology and all the other sciences and arts and disciplines of the pastorate. But please realize that in the pastorate, you are theologizing or you are, you're doing theology in the context of real life. Mm-hmm. And so just as in the pastorate, Though you might have hours set aside that are sacred and protected by you, your wife, your secretary, for sermon prep, very much on your mind is still the reality of the 90-year-old who's going to die before the end of the day and the couple that you counseled two days ago whose marriage is about to fall apart. So you do theology. You do sermon prep in the throes of life. In seminary, you have to learn in the throes of life. You can't stop time for four years and simply learn all these cool things from erudite professors. You cannot do it. Life has to go on, and you have to learn how to fit this new component called seminary 
into your life and adjust accordingly. Mm, that's that's very well said. I think that's so true too, because as you said, certainly time continues, and um, wow, that that is very helpful. Um, keeping that perspective and that balance and everything that we do, um, not dismissing the reality. Certainly, this is what God has called us to do at this time of our lives, and to do it with all the diligence that we can. But as I said um, to my wife. Um, Prior to me coming to seminary, I was married before I came to seminary um, with all the responsibilities that come with that. And um, that is my first responsibility. And this, in other words, if seminary gets in the way of my marriage, then something's got to change, either the way I'm doing it or the fact that I am doing it, something along that way. As we said in the introduction, and I don't, I don't say this in a negative way, but um, just being real, you know, speaking reality here. Um, you're a relatively young minister. Um, what have been some of the challenges, maybe, being in the ministry at a younger age? It's certainly true that because you uh, adorn the pulpit during a worship service that folks might respect the young man's preaching. But folks are a lot more hesitant to respect a young man's counsel. Mm. And sometimes I think, to use a Southern phrase, because I don't have enough seat time in my life or because I don't have enough experience in life, who are you, young man, to offer any counsel? Have you ever had that happen to you? Oh, absolutely. Um, And this is why, in general, it is true that I try to pass off anything in the 40 age group and older to our associate who's 54, I think, 55, and I try to handle stuff 40 and down simply because a man with gray hair and scars from life, it is true that in most scenarios I don't have anything to teach him. But this is where as a young man you have to show people you're not in it for pride or glory. Mm. And this is where you have to develop the relationship and a, a reputation about yourself that you can very calmly look at the old person and say, you're not seeking my wisdom. You're seeking the wisdom that the Holy Spirit has given me as a man ordained to this office of teaching elder. And so I don't speak as a 27-year-old or an 80-year-old. I speak as a teaching elder. And, and if, if we as ministers can really think about us being the, the mouthpiece of God in our, in our proclamation and our counseling as a man who has been conferred by the laying on of hands and proper ordination from other elders— then we can always put the spotlight back on the truths of Christ and say, hey, I'm not coming to you as a 27-year-old with no wisdom or a seasoned man. I'm coming to you as one who I believe the Holy Spirit is working through and has called to be a mouthpiece of truth in your life. Mm. I think that's well said. I think there's um, an aspect there that that um, you touched on that I think captures the essence of it, that even whether I'm 25 or 55, my my role, your role in counseling is to point them to Christ. Um, it, 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 take them to the Scriptures. Point them to the Lord. Um, I'm not your solution. I can't be your solution. Um, I can point you to the solution. I can remind you that of that which you probably already know to do in the first place. But um, I remember having this conversation with another man who was much younger than I am, and... Um, how, how you overcome that. I mean, it, you know, Paul, I think, said to Timothy that um, don't let anybody despise your youth. Um, now, people argue about, you know, how old was Timothy when, he, when Paul said that, you know, and there's this differences of opinion as to that. Um, 
But on the other hand, there is some value, some truth to the to the what you said also about having those scars of life, being able to frame certain counseling circumstances and situations around that. Um, you mentioned um, the man who's um, the associate pastor at Second Pres, and um, obviously he's got different experiences in life. He's got more experience in certain things than you have more experience than he's got in certain things. So I think there's a harmony there in a, in a situation and some wisdom, in fact, in knowing that perhaps I can better help this person by kicking them up to the other man. Because after all, that's the goal, right? Um, the goal is to help them, not not be the one that has to help them, but get them in the right place that they can be helped. That's certainly true. And one of the – I should have said this to begin with. You have to learn very quickly when you're in over your head. And mm. I think that will be true for the rest of my ministry, even when I'm a 70-year-old, God willing, and still in the ministry. You've got to learn when you're in over your head and when you need to find either a more seasoned person or a plurality of people, namely the session gathered or the presbytery gathered, to hear another perspective. Because if if you're not willing to say, look, I give up, I need more wisdom, you're going to really harm somebody's life and for no reason. That's great. I mean, I remember as you were saying that, I I reflected on um, the church that sent me to seminary, and and they asked that very question in a practical nature. you know, what would you do if a man came to you for counseling? Here you are, a teaching elder, and uh, supposedly you have the answers because you went to seminary, which we know that's a myth. Um, you should have some answers, but you don't have them all. And um, how would you handle that? That was their question. And um, I remember sitting back in my chair for a minute thinking about it, and, and my answer was this. One of the nice things about being Presbyterian is that I am not in charge. I'm not the boss. I don't have all the answers. Um, I have elders that I can lean on, some wiser than me, some more seasoned than I am, some who've been down that road in different ways than I have, who I can lean upon and say, brothers, look, I need help. I do not know what to do. I I, I don't have an answer. I'm not sure how to take this. And you can get those kinds of wise assistance from those men. And I appreciate you saying that because I think there's such strength there if the ultimate goal is to assist that member with whatever they're struggling with, um, if that's the goal. Coming out of seminary, certainly you had, as I said earlier, you had various ideas of what ministry's like. Um, what have been some of your discouragements? I think in our minds we expect perfection out of all the elders. In our minds we think that when we show up in a church – well, I'm not going to make any mistakes, of course, and so none of the officers should either. And I think we read Thornwell, we read about a strong ruling elder in the Southern Presbyterian tradition, and we think these men are surely going to put in 40 hours a week in their vocation and 40 in the church, right? <laughs> and so we have unrealistic expectations about what an elder can actually do who has a wife, three kids, and a 50-hour-a-week job. And so really, if your expectations are accurate, um, obtainable and biblical that really will head some of your frustrations the other thing is you just have to realize that uh, the church is made up of sinners another cliche statement i'm sorry but in seminary it's one thing to recite that and, and share that advice with one another but it's the first time that sin offends you or that sin causes your wife hurt or that sin comes in the form of a rejection of your ministry that you realize it's not a cliche statement it's mm-hmm. true that not only are sinners in the church, they sin in the church. 
that they offend one another. <laughs> yeah, sure. So that that was that was very tough. You you know you always want more grace to be shown to you, and I guess you realize you don't show grace well either. And so who are you to to cast the first stone? But it's when you realize that sinners in the church offend one another as much as they do those outside of the body of Christ that mm-hmm. you can quickly become discouraged and even despondent. What about some of your more joyful experiences? And in, in other words, things that have said to you, you know. The, being in the ministry is the greatest place to be, and I would rather be here than anywhere else. To me, it would be when you have those occasions as an individual pastor exercising authority and as a session, when you meet with somebody to confront about a sin issue and their response is positive. Mm. The Holy Spirit convicts, and you see true repentance. You see a seeking after Holy Spirit revival in their hearts. And you see them following the language of confession to endeavor after new obedience and renewed zeal. To see that the Holy Spirit actually works and does do as He promised to bless your ministry, uh, that literally wipes you, sweeps you off your feet sometimes. It, it literally overwhelms you with emotion to realize that the Spirit actually is accompanying His Word and the ministry of His elders. And um, it's just great when people can park their pride long enough to see that um, a brother telling them they're a sinner is not something to be feared, but rather something to embrace and respond to. Yeah, that's great. I, you don't often hear that answer, I don't think, when that question is asked, you know, what are some of the greatest joys of ministry? But it is a joyful time when you exercise your office in the right and biblical way and you see a person repent, broken over their sin, be restored to the fellowship. I mean, that's there's not too many things that are more joyful than that. Uh, obviously, we hope that never happens, and we never have to do that kind of thing. But it does happen. It's a reality of life. We, as you said earlier, the church is made up of sinners, and it's going to happen. Um, but that is a joyful experience. I remember sitting and, and watching. One of the things that always gave me, excited me quite a bit, is when I would see an ordained minister baptize a covenant child, I used to get very um, emotional over that, um, seeing the Lord building his church by bringing this child to the to a visible communion of the believers of Christ. And um, I thought, man, it doesn't get much better than this. Um, so there is joy. I mean, we, we talked off air about you know, how ministry can be very difficult and sometimes burdensome. Um, but there is joyful times through it and certainly there's the times where you have to go to the hospital and the person's dying and 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 all those difficulties that come along with it but um i appreciate that answer it's it's interesting um i think scripture teaches us that you know the even the angels in heaven repent or repent even the angels in heaven rejoice at when one sinner um repents of his uh, repents of his sin and comes to christ then um you know that's that's an interesting perspective i appreciate that what um, might you say to a young, even, let's just stay in the perspective of the young seminary student, because it's kind of, I think, your station in life right now, you probably identify a little bit more so, I guess, with that area or time. Um, as they work their way through seminary, what would you say to them, um, if you only had one thing to say to them as they labor through their three or four years of seminary training, what kind of advice would you give them? I've thought about that a lot. <laughs> I think it would be you only get to do seminary once, or at least your your MDiv degree. Don't ever forget that. 
you'll learn pastoral ministry the first year of ministry. You'll learn practical theology later. You really will. You'll only learn Greek and Hebrew once. You'll only learn exegesis once. You'll only learn that amazing biblical theological theme that truly does connect all of Scripture once. Mm -hmm. And so your focus and your energy should be on those things you're learning for the first time. Because there's never going to be a time in your life where for three years you truly are called simply to learn. Yeah, there's some regurgitation. There's some ministry involved. But for really the only time in your life, your job is to learn new, amazing, life-altering, eternal truths. You're never going to get that season back. And so we want proactive men who are going to their church sessions asking for internships, asking for practical experience. But just remember, that'll come later. What you really want to soak up is that amazing new exegetical point that you never thought you would have the skills to learn, that now God's opened your eyes up through the Spirit and through a godly professor. I mean, you see the unity and the cohesive truth of the gospel beginning in Genesis 3 and on through Revelation. And for the first time, you actually understand in, in greater detail and depth than you ever thought would be possible the Word of God, and therefore your passion is excited all over again to be a herald, a proclaimer of that truth. So my advice would be make sure those are the things you soak up. Make sure those are the things that you that you strive for. Uh, arrange your schedules around those disciplines in, 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 in seminary. Again, practical theology professors would hate me for saying this, and if any of them are listening, they would be mad. But in, in all honesty, you're going to learn practical theology later. You're going to learn that when you sit through session meetings and at church and staff meetings. Uh, the classroom is just really no place to learn that stuff. <laughs> well, I agree with you. I think, you know, some of that stuff can just not, you know, we talked off air a little bit about that. You know, the, there's so many things that you just can't get out of a book. And, um, but you're going to get it. It's, an, it's inevitable. And you're going to come face to face with that reality and how to take that systematic theology or that biblical theology and harmonize it with practical, real, everyday life and how to put that in the hands of everyday people, as it were, and so that they can use that in their own lives on Monday morning when they got to go to the office or to the factory or, the, or wherever it is they work. Um, you know, keeping it, well, keeping it real. I mean, I, don't, I hate that phrase, but, I mean, that's just the reality of it. We're not called to live, you know, way up in the ivory tower somewhere. Um, you know, I think of Christ when he came to earth. He, he walked with sinful men. He ate with sinful men. He did everything with them um, side by side, shoulder by shoulder to shoulder. And um, you're right. We'll get a lot of that then and um, probably more than we bargained for. Um, I look forward to that day. Um, I do because as a seminary student and the throes of it, you know, midway through, um, I'm getting anxious to that day, that reality when I can be done with this part of it. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I was I think I'm thinking of Warfield when he wrote a little booklet on, um, I think it's called Lectures to Theological Students or something to that effect, and um, where he mentioned how much of a privilege it is to be able to get up every day and study theology and doctrine and what better thing can there be than that? And, and, and in some sense, in some area, there's a, there's a, there's a, a certain, uh, certain aspect to it where we get to do all that without the encumbrances, if that's the right word, of all the other things that come along with being in the ministry. We get to just sit and read and study and write papers. I know people are listening to this. They're going, are you crazy? Right. 
how can writing papers be joyful? But but you get to do all that in the theoretical realm without all the other stuff that comes along with it. And um, but I'll be but I will confess that there's a part of me that is um, looking forward to being done with all this study as well. So, but you never stop studying, right? You know, well, if you're going to be anything other than a lousy preacher, you better not. <laughs> you know, theology is always what you have to bring to pastoral counseling situations. Of course, you package it differently when you're dealing with individuals in pain, but if you don't have theology, you'll have nothing to give them. Right. Now, you mentioned preaching. You've had, um, we talked off air, you've, 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 you're preaching the pulpit, well, regularly, often enough. I think you mentioned 20 times over the last year. Um what what does your week look like? Um, because you're not doing it on a weekly basis, um, how does your week differ maybe from the weeks you know you're going to be in the pulpit, as opposed to not? There's just a lot of of relational ministry again. That's a phrase that's probably been used very poorly. There's a lot of one on one and small group ministry that you simply cannot fit in uh, the weeks you're preaching. Uh, I just have to know in my mind that there's a lot of people I would love to catch up with in a given week that are going to go on the back burner if I'm going to be faithful and diligent in my calling to prepare a sermon. Mm. So that might mean that whereas one week I'm not preaching, I have two breakfasts and a coffee that week. The week I'm preaching, I'm not because that morning now becomes blocked off for sermon prep. Mm. And again, only emergencies in that case would take you out of that routine. Uh, and so, so frankly, you're just in some ways – the weeks you're not preaching, your reward's instantaneous because you're meeting with people, hopefully being a blessing to them and vice versa, and moving on. Whereas uh, the weeks where you're doing sermon prep, the reward is your personal edification as you prepare. But the finished product, you have to wait for the Lord's day to receive. <laughs> you have to receive the benefit of. And so in some ways it's a delayed blessing uh, other than, again, the personal edification that goes through the process of preparing. And so it's just it's a really different sense of fulfillment. It's a really different sense of joy that comes from it. One, there's a build-up. You're building up all week long. You're putting your thoughts together, your clauses together, your exegesis together, your application. And the other one, you're with them for 30 minutes. You say a blessing and send them on their way. So it really is a different feeling altogether. That's interesting. I was thinking about that myself yesterday. Um, you labor all week long, prepare a sermon, get up there, and you preach your heart out, hopefully to God's glory and hopefully exegetically and theologically sound and he just never seemed to know what impact it had if any impact and you may never know what impact um but in that one-on-one exchange you get sometimes often i would suspect you get that instantaneous um feedback um you can see a person's eyes light up you can see the a body language change um and while you're talking um you see response. It's just different. Um, that, that's interesting. I, as, as I said, I was just thinking about that yesterday, all this labor and time and, and spent in the pulpit, and you just don't know what's happening in people's hearts in that way. Not to say that's a bad thing. It's just the reality of it. Um, you, certain. You, that brings up um, something that I should say also is just advice for a young minister. We're Presbyterians, folks, and so we don't, wear our emotions on our sleeves as a young minister I, I wanted eye contact and i wanted people smiling crying agreeing nodding i wanted body language involved into them being uh, active participants and so when i don't get that i always worry 
It's a Presbyterian church. That's no indication of anything. There's been times where I thought the whole congregation was asleep that I got more positive feedback than any other time. So, so, <laughs> yep. so nonverbal cues really are something you have to avoid looking for. And the other thing is this. I still find myself as a young man measuring my effectiveness based on how many attaboys I got, on how many people come to me saying, thank you for that pastor I got. When really that's a habit, whether you're a young minister or not, you have to avoid that altogether because sometimes your exegesis is going to be the very thing that infuriates somebody. And so if you're depending on them to like and affirm everything you say, that standard of, of measurement to determining success will t- turn around and bite you one day. Yeah, it reminds me of someone who said one time that you really should be preaching to an audience of one or preaching in the sense that you have an audience of one. Of course, that'd be Christ and um if your sermons please him, then what comes from that is his business. Um, and as you said about the attaboys, I think it's a it's a natural. I don't care what age you're at. Um, I'm 46, and it's a it's a temptation to want people to affirm your sermons. Um, I've done it enough to know um, that you want someone to say thank you. You want someone to say, I really appreciated that. You know, they never, they're never specific, <laughs> I've noticed. They just say that they appreciated it. You never know what they appreciated, but be that as it may, it, it feels good. Um, but I think it's as Spurgeon said one time when he preached what he thought to be a particularly good sermon, and an uh, elderly lady in his church said to him that she really appreciated that sermon. It was a really fine sermon, and he said to her, thank you, ma'am, um, but Satan has already told me that three times before I left the stage. What's the point? <laughs> the point is a man's always going to be an uh, unfaithful and disloyal consumer. <laughs> That's right. And our egos are easily blown up um, to infantus- to ridiculous levels. And um, you know, have to remind ourselves that we're just ministers and uh, we're just agents in this process. And... Um, fact of the matter is God doesn't need us to do any of it anyway. Um, there's always somebody else. And um, it's humbling to think of that. In, in, in the grand scheme of things, we're just a pinprick in eternity. And, um, but if we can be used in that small pinprick to affect God's kingdom, then great. And, um, but however he wants to do it is the, the, really the key issue here. Um, whether you're old or young, um, pursuing this responsibility, it's... Um, it's 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 an awesome responsibility, and I don't use that word in the wrong sense, um, but it's awesome in the sense that um, it has great responsibility, great weight behind it. And I know, even as a young minister, you must feel that week to week, especially when you have to be in the pulpit. But even when you're dealing with people one on one, the wrong choice of words, the, a word spoken out of turn, a word not said that should have been said. Um, Wow, there's just so much responsibility there. Um, have you had experiences in counseling where you've looked back and said, you know, this was awful. <laughs> this, uh, this couldn't have gone worse. Um, and maybe had experiences where you thought you'd, you weren't very effective but found out later that that was actually what the, that person needed. It's certainly true that less is usually more. <laughs> Mm. If you can, another cliche. Absolutely. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Some cliches are, are valuable. If you can apply the balm of the gospel to somebody's soul in three sentences, don't take 30 minutes to do it. That's just really not going to be good use of anybody's time. And so I have realized that a lot of times where I've, I've been a failure, as it were, 
it's because I let my mouth and my personality get in the way. Um, when you lead with your personality and not gospel proclamation, things aren't going to go well. Mm. And so you have to get that get that in mind. But the other example you gave, the spirit is the one that has to be pleased to work. And so there are times where you are the prophet of the Old Testament saying, I have a speech impediment, surely you're not going to call me. And three weeks later, the person you thought uh, ignored every word you said can come back to you and dissect the entire counseling session and tell you how they've responded positively in their life as a result of that session. So sometimes people really do surprise you. That's amazing. Sometimes I come back and say things and you're thinking to yourself, I don't remember saying any of that. All the time. <laughs> Apparently God told them, though, or something happened because it worked. So, And that's the important thing to keep in mind. This is the Lord's work. It's not our work. Um, and so we press forward in that with that in mind and try to keep that in front of us at all time. As we wrap things up, what's going on at Second Prez? Anything uh, coming up that might be of interest maybe to Greenville people? You know, it's an exciting time in the church. We've been around since 1892, and so there's there's some uh, there's some dust on the walls, and there's some history as you walk through the building. Mm-hmm. Um, frankly, just seeing a revitalized downtown and knowing that your church has the potential to be a part of that is very something uh, something very interesting. You know, now there's apartments going up all around the church, and so there's new opportunities for local evangelism that just simply haven't been there in the history of the church. Mm. Um, the West End used to be pretty industrial. In fact, there were mills there, and now there's there's lofts and high-rises and things like that. So really, our focus, we're, we're trying to reorient ourselves around the, the prerogative for evangelism. That's also looked like starting a good news club to the, to the public elementary school that's literally across the road from us. It's little things like that. So we've really just recognized lately that personal and congregational evangelism is something that the Lord has given us an opportunity to do by simply throwing a multitude of people right in our laps. Um, and so it's, it's neat that our church, uh, while it used to be in a location where we had to keep deacons outside during the evening service to keep cars from getting broken into, mm. now we have to keep cars out of our parking lot from consumers going downtown so we can get into worship. And so the area is completely flipped, and here in the center is a church that's been there since 1892, I'm able to now reach out to the to the to the community and be good neighbors. Yeah, and it's a beautiful building. I can attest to that. Um, I had my first walk through it this summer, um, though I've been here for a while. Um, finally, got somebody to take me on a tour of the building, and um, and it, it is it's historic. It's um, it's it's really an, a, a um, fantastic, beautiful sanctuary, and. Um, you know, it sort of stands as a pillar to God's goodness all these years in that community. And you're right about the parking. I can attest to that because um, you go down there and now they got parking maids and whatnot during even during the day, during the business day, um, keeping control of the circumstances. But it's good. And it seems the Lord is, is, is blessing the work there. Um, you and the pastoral staff um, have a lot on your plate. Uh, no question about that. And um, it's good to see those opportunities show themselves up around you as you said it was at one time a you know an industrial center now it's turning into sort of that uh, yuppie uh, there's an, another word but perfect word yeah a yuppie mentality and um that's fine they need the gospel too so um bring it on as it were so that's been good i know we've been long i mean in fact we've we've talked well we talked longer off air than we talked on air but um but that's been, that's fine um 
but it's it's good to hear the perspective of someone who you know just has you know relatively speaking just come out of seminary and has been in the throes of of ministry work you know in the raw you know hardcore there doing it each day day in and day out for the last two years and some of the struggles and some of the obstacles and as well as the successes and uh, so that's very helpful and i appreciate your time that's my pleasure it's good to be here and finally yeah. catch up with you absolutely it's been great and get to know you more uh, you've been listening to an interview with seth starkey he is the assistant pastor at second presbyterian church in downtown greenville and if you live in the greenville area um, i'm sure they'd be glad to have you come by visit um, uh, as you're able um, why don't you tell everybody while i've thinking of it what are the worship service times lord's day worship services are 8 30 and 11 a.m with sunday school at 10 6 p.m on lord's day evening and then we have a supper at 5 45 and prayer meeting and bible study at seven on wednesdays i kind of put them on the spot there that was one of those one of those questions you ask and it, you know the mind goes blank immediately even though you should know the answer to the question right um, but anyway he did well um but there you go and if you're interested in visiting um they'd be glad to Certainly glad to see you and um, welcome you there to worship with them. They are PCA Congregation, Presbyterian Church in America, and they're located right in downtown Greenville. You can't miss it. It's a fantastic building um, right there in the middle of the city. So, Seth, it's been great. And coming up on the program, I I don't have any clue. And I say that every week because I really don't. Um, So I have to check my calendar, get back to the world. But if you want to know, you can go to our website at confessingourhope.com, and that's where you'll find it for sure. I guarantee on the website. So until next time, we thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.